Hello, welcome back to part two of our Leap versus Cone, The Dilemma. Well, in this session, we're going to answer the question, when should you do a leap and when should you do a cone? Remember, if you didn't listen to part one, you got to go back because that sets the stage and reviews the algorithm of who should have excisional therapy. And we also covered in that session some revealing data about the nature of dysplasia alone and its adverse pregnancy ties. In other words, yep, High-grade dysplasia can cause preterm labor by itself, even without treatment. So now that we've established that, let's get into part two at Stacy's recommendation, which is leap versus cone. Of course, there's some logistical contrast between the two. LEAP can be performed in a physician's office under local anesthesia, whereas a cone requires general or at least regional anesthesia, although it's very well been published just with a deep paracervical block. But in general, if the patient is going to the operating room, then a regional anesthetic is given, although my preference is a deep paracervical block and some IV sedation. Historically, a leap has been preferred for more shallow, quote, bites or excisions or excavations of the cervix compared to a cone. But you can get a very shallow cone as well if you just angle the blade correctly. So that really is more of a technique issue than the procedure itself. Although the general indication for leap and cone are the same, which is persistent CIN2 or CIN3 or more, there's some specific indications for cone that do not exist for a leap. The specific indications for a cone knife cone include suspected microinvasive squamous carcinoma, or if there's a suspicion of adenocarcinoma in situ, which requires deep cylindrical endocervix conization, then a CKC is preferred because you can get a lot of thermal artifact in the endocervical canal, even with a top hat, and that makes leap less favorable for suspected adenocarcinoma in situ. Additionally, if there's distorted cervical or vaginal anatomy, that contributes to increased risks of vaginal or fornix burns or fornix cuts with a LEAP device. So any fixed or extremely retro or antiverted cervix that can be hard to reach with a LEAP requires a cone knife cone. Lastly, any high-grade lesion that goes deep into the endocervical canal is a relative, and I say relative, contraindication to LEAP, once again because fear of getting a thermal artifact and not being able to read exactly if there's microinvasion in the endocervical canal or not. So it's relative because while the most traditional favors a cone-knife cone for endocervical lesions, I do like a LEAP and I do a LEAP. I just ensure a wide margin around the endocervical canal now with a top hat that gives me good clean margins rather than artifact. Leaps, historically, while they did perform very well, weren't looked at at the same level as a cone. And to be honest, it was because of user errors. In other words, it was a lot easier to get a thermal artifact or an incomplete specimen or the two-section leap, which was not as well done as a single specimen cone. And that's why, historically, leaps were kind of frowned upon. But as techniques improved and as experience improved, the leap and the cone honestly kind of rival each other in terms of outcome and in treatment success. But what you don't want to do is what I've done in the past, because, I mean, it just happens, is you do the two-section leap. In other words, you leap the anterior part of the cervix and then the posterior part of the cervix because you just can't get it all in one bite. And I understand trying to keep the patient out of the OR and there's cost implications with all of that. But although in the most cases, in the majority of the cases, you're going to be okay doing that, that two-section leap, in theory, you really are kind of 
obliterating that middle joint area because of that artifact in between. And that can make it hard for the pathologist. Remember, the ideal way to do an excision, either with a leap or a cone, is a single specimen take that's one piece in its entirety. So there's a quick clinical pearl. Even though I've done it and you can do a top anterior portion of the leap and then go back and get the bottom part of the leap, the truth is it's not best practice, although like everything else, you have to put the pros and the cons on the page because the advantage is, well, you keep it out of the OR. It's less cost. There's no exposure to uh, major sedation. So as always, it's case by case scenario. But if it's a big lesion and you don't think you can get it in one swipe, then consider a shallow cold knife cone. All right, listen up, everybody, because here's a quick clinical pearl on technique. You don't want to do the leap incorrectly and then get an unable to read or a totally charred specimen and something that's hard for the pathologist to interpret. Remember that we're supposed to excise the lesion circumferentially in one piece with about a two to three millimeter margin beyond the transformation zone or beyond the width of the lesion. We're also supposed to excise just about five to seven millimeters deep. And the reason is, is that 99% of the endocervical gland involvement is to a depth of at or below five millimeters. So we're not trying to excavate. We're not looking for gold here, guys. Just five to seven millimeters in depth and about two to three millimeters beyond the transformation zone or beyond the width of any visible lesion. There's also another contraindication to a leap that pushes a patient over to a cold knife cone. And that's if the patient has a cardiac pacemaker that's demand type. The last thing you want to do is freak out a cardiac pacemaker with some current. Even though they're grounded, a demand type cardiac pacemaker is a contraindication to a leap pushing the patient over to a cold knife cone. Now, in addition to the pathological contraindications for a leap and the cardiac pacemaker issue, we also have to consider pregnancy. According to the ASCCP, pregnancy is a contraindication to leap performance, pushing the patient over to a cone knife cone, again, only if necessary, and based on gestational age, if we choose excision in a pregnant patient. So what are the contraindications to leap? Well, pathological conditions of the cervix we've already discussed, cardiac pacemaker demand type, and pregnancy. Now, a quick word about some safety precautions for a leap. Remember that you have to remove all metal jewelry from the patient, even if she's grounded. Also, never put the grounding of the leap to a metal part of the equipment. Never put it to a metal stirrup or instrument tray or an IV pole. That's a great way to start a fire. Also remember that the dispersive pad, the return electrode, must be in complete contact with the patient near the operative site. If that little sticky pad is a little bit elevated, it can burn the patient, and I've actually seen it done. Make sure also to avoid alcohol or flammable liquids near the electrode. And remember, for a leap, the patient should not have a cardiac pacemaker. Now, be honest, how many of you do the leap after placement of Lugol and after your local anesthesia, but do it visually without a culpo because you can see the lesion centrally? And that's okay. But did you know that best practice is actually to perform the leap with copo guidance? In other words, we're supposed to be doing this under magnification. Now, to be honest, I have done this without copo, especially with cervixes that have a very clear transformation zone after Lugol's and the lesion is very well demarcated. I have done this with a single pass just visually without copo guidance. But it is best practice to do it under microscopic magnification. And the reason is because it helps us get a better edge and it also ensures that we don't go too deep into the cervix.
Okay, as we end the podcast, a quick word about OB complications. And we talked about this in part one, but some specific adverse issues like preterm birth after an excision procedure. Remember that according to Comer et al. from the Green Journal in 2014, there was actually no significant difference in the rates of preterm birth after LEAP compared with women with cervical dysplasia, but no excision. So it seems that dysplasia by itself can just elevate the risk of preterm birth alone. In some studies, but not all, LEAP was associated with significant increases in late preterm birth, defined as greater than 34 weeks, and a cone was statistically significantly increased risk for early preterm birth, defined as less than 32 weeks. However, this is not universally accepted, and for every report that says that, there's another one that says that that's not the case, because the issue is that researchers simply look at cone versus leap, but sometimes don't go into the details and look at how those were performed. Remember, technique totally matters, and we drill that in in another podcast topic, which was two or single-layer closure at hysterotomy. It's not just about doing a single-layer or a two-layer closure at C-section, it's how how it's specifically done. Well, the same issue is here. It's not just about doing a leap or a cone, but how they are performed. Remember, in doing excisional therapy, both for diagnosis and for treatment, excise just what needs to be done and leave native tissue behind. And remember that post-treatment, regardless of margin status, the ASCCP recommends an HPV test at six months post-procedure. All right, everyone, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered cold knife cone versus leap. And we've also covered some of the ASCCP guidelines from 2019. We appreciate you and thank you for being part of our podcast family. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls. <laughs>